Genesis chapter number 12 tonight. Genesis chapter number 12. Last week, uh, last Sunday night, we began a series on the life of Abraham and particularly on the element of faith in the life of Abraham. Faith is an unusual and interesting attribute. Faith is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself outwardly. Faith is not works, but faith without works is dead, the book of James says. And my old preacher used to say, I don't believe in faith and works, but I do believe in a faith that works. In other words, real faith is going to produce a result in a person's life. If I could give a basic definition, and you've got to be careful doing that because you leave so much out, but a basic definition would be an effectual dependence upon God. In other words, not just that we believe that He exists, but that we every day depend on Him. Now, that's what faith is, and that's what the life of faith is. And you say, well, I'm just not given the gift of faith. Well, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. The Bible says we walk not by faith, or not by sight, but by faith. Uh, so if you're a born-again believer, you're called to a life of faith, living every day consciously in the presence of Almighty God and depending upon Him for your needs. Abraham so beautifully portrayed this. God spoke to Abraham, and the Bible calls him a Syrian ready to perish, just a pagan man in a pagan land. But God called his name and appeared to him, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 7, uh, before he came into Haran, while he was in Mesopotamia, the Lord appeared to him and told Abraham, said, Abraham, I want you to leave and go out from your country and from your kindred, and I want you to follow me. Now, you may say, well, what's so remarkable about that? Plenty of people move away from home. Well, neighbor, it's one thing to move away when we've got phone and Internet and civilization everywhere. It's another thing to just take out walking one day and not know where you're going. But walking not by sight, but by faith. Or we might say this, walking not subservient to human logic. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Are you saying faith is an illogical thing? No, I'm saying faith is spiritually logical, not humanly logical. Uh, just as there is a spiritual world, you say, oh, you mean there's a, a world that's not real. No, the spiritual world is just as real as the physical world. It's just something we can't see or perceive at the moment. And faith in the same way is on a different plane from human logic. That doesn't mean it's illogical. But you see, if you start to look at logic in the way that God looks at logic, you'll understand that faith is a logical thing. But if you look at logic as this world presents logic, you're not going to understand what true faith really is. And so it's the effectual dependence upon God. And God tells Abraham to step out in faith. And Abraham, after a time of disobedience, finally obeys the Lord and does that and begins to travel and goes to a place that the Bible calls Canaan. And, of course, we know that later on this area is going to be known as Israel. And it was the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. So last week we examined faith as it was discovered. Faith is a new element in Abraham's life. And faith, much as it uh, presents itself to the sinner after they come to know Christ, when faith is new. But here tonight, I don't want to look at faith discovered, but I want us to move on to the next episode, and I want us to look at faith deserted. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, And Abraham, or Abram, you forgive me if I make that mistake several times, his 
name was not changed to Abraham yet, but it was still Abram. But it's hard to think of Abraham without calling him Abraham, you know. So, And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. I want you to underscore that phrase that Abram uses there, my soul shall live because of thee. It's going to be important later on. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Would you pray with me this evening? Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the honor that it is to stand in your pulpit. Lord, I pray that you would help me, Father, in humility to be submitted to you. Lord, I'm nothing. I'm completely incapable and insufficient. But Lord, I want to thank You that You made the promise that You'd be our sufficiency. And I want to ask that Your Holy Spirit would give me unction and power to preach. Lord, that Your Word would be effective and effectual in the hearts of Your people. You alone know what the need on each heart is. And Lord, You alone can meet it. So Father, we commit these things in faith, in prayer, asking You to accomplish them, Lord. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, honor, and glory that's due to your holy name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we read this passage, it's interesting to me that such a difficult time should come upon Abram so soon after he has uh, began his journey with the Lord. Many of us are familiar with this passage, and we learned it in Sunday school, and uh, we learned it growing up, and we've heard it preached. And there's no doubt that there's going to be a lot that's left unsaid tonight. I promise you, any preacher of the Word of God that says everything he's got to say in 30 or 45 minutes don't have much to say about a passage. But tonight I just want to dissect it and I want to give you an analytical, boy, that's a good word, an analytical view of this passage. I want us to just take it as a whole and then take it apart. We look in this passage, and I want you to notice the word south that's used in verse 9. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. God has called Abraham up out of the south. Now, he was to the southeast, but God's called him up out of the south. And he's come up, and then he just kept on journeying back down south. It's indicative, uh, not just of what was taking place in the narrative, 
of Abram's life, but spiritually what began to take place as well. Picture, if you will, the scenario for Abraham. Abram is a, uh, is a man that has known nothing but uh, pagan gods. Abram is a man that's known nothing but a pagan land. And God has appeared to him in a miraculous way. And God's began to deal with him in his life. The Bible tells us that Abram built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. And he has this relationship with the Lord. But not yet has adversity really faced Abram. You know, let me begin by saying this. Uh, any man that tries to live by faith will not find it easy. Anybody that determines to put their faith in God, you say, oh, you mean to get saved, preacher. Well, you had to get saved. But let me go a step further. There's a lot of people that are saved, but they don't walk by faith. There's a lot of people that are saved, but the life of faith is foreign to them. And when you begin to set out and say, I'm going to put my faith in God to meet my needs, I'm not saying you ought to quit your job. I'm not saying you ought to not make any plans for the future. What I'm saying is this, you ought to understand who, whose hand your future is in. When you begin to understand that it's God who you're here to serve, and it's God who you're here to please, and you say, Lord, I'm just going to do everything I can to serve you and trust you with the consequences that come from it. The life of faith, you'll find that adversity comes to pass pretty quickly. In the first few verses of this passage, I want us to notice that we see Abram's faith challenged. And anybody that lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And anybody that determines to love God and to serve Him in a public way, uh, Christ said that the world's going to hate you because it hated me. And so it wasn't long that Abraham began to live by faith before something came into his path, a difficulty that could have dissuaded him from serving God. And we're going to see that he let him do that. I want to say, though, there's a few things many times that challenge our faith. As we attempt to try to put our faith in God and depend upon Him, there's some things that the devil uses to try to trip us up in our serving the Lord. And I want to say that sometimes difficulty can challenge our faith. You know, I'm sure that it was a uh, confusing and confounding thing for Abraham. Here he's just set out serving God, and all of a sudden, here comes a famine in the land. I'm sure that Abraham's mind cast backwards uh, to her the Chaldees and thought about the well, uh, the well-watered crops and thought about all the provision that was there in his homeland. But in this place that God has brought him into, all of a sudden there's a famine. You know, I'm sure there's a great temptation to doubt the Lord. But can I say that difficulty is no excuse to not follow God. Anything that's ever been done uh, that is going to matter in eternity was difficult in the doing. Anything that you ever do that's going to make a difference for eternity was not easily won. And it's a difficult thing when the whole world walks by sight for you to walk by faith. You say, preacher, what do you mean whenever you're praying for a loved one to come to know the Lord and it just seems like they slip further and further and further away? That's not the time to quit having faith. That's the time to have more faith in God than you've ever had before. In times whenever you're facing financial difficulties, let me ask you a personal question. How many of you feel the economy? Yeah, most of us do. The, the truth of the matter is, now you take this how you want to take it, I think it's about to get a lot worse. I think that yesterday was the best day that we're ever going to have, better than what we're ever going to have again. I think today's better than what we're ever going to have again. Now, you don't have to believe that, friend. Uh, but I look in the Word of God, and I don't see America anywhere in Bible prophecy for the end-time days. I don't believe we'll be obliterated in a nuclear holocaust or anything of that effect. I believe we're going to be so economically crippled 
that we're just going to be another person at the table. We're not going to have any kind of uh, political prowess or significance. I think that's where we're headed. It's a basic and simple truth that you can't spend more than you make. Isn't that right? We all have to learn that lesson, but our government won't, right? I believe we're headed that direction. And uh, no doubt many of you feel the economy. We all feel the economy. Uh, What about when the bills start coming in and the paychecks don't? Is that the time to quit believing in God? Is that the time to quit depending upon Him? Let me tell you this. You don't need faith until it gets difficult. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't have faith, but it's merely to say that you don't really need faith until it gets difficult. When you've got a problem, that's when you need faith the most. You see, what faith is, is looking at a world and looking at a circumstance that gives you no reason to believe that it will work out in any way, shape, fashion, or form and saying, I'm going to believe God, that He is the God in heaven, that He is on my behalf, and that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. That's faith. Faith is looking at a hopeless situation and finding hope in God's Word, saying nobody could believe it would turn out in a good way. Nobody could believe that I could make my bills this week, this month, this whatever, but God can make a way. Nobody could believe that my loved one could come to know Christ, but God can make a way. No one could believe uh, that whatever this ailment is that I'm struggling from, uh, that the Lord could cure me from it, but the Lord can. You see, that's faith. Faith begins to work and operate when the impossible enters the scene. So difficulty can be a thing that dissuades us from serving the Lord. And we see that. There was a famine in the land. But I want to say that distraction sometimes causes us to stray from the life of faith. You say, preacher, what do you mean? It was just too easy of a journey down to Egypt. (laughs) I was talking this morning to one of our members, and we were talking about a particular situation and a loved one that they are concerned about that is straying away and doing some things they shouldn't. And I said, you know, one of the most tragic things about society today is we don't let our children and grandchildren ever hit the hog pen. You see, the truth of the matter is, if the prodigal had never hit the hog pen, he would have never come to himself and never come back home. Vance Havner used to say that if the prodigal lived today, they'd give him a sandwich and a bed and he'd never go home. And too often we give people a way out when the only way out ought to be God. Let me tell you something. Don't run for the easy fix when you come to a difficult place in your life. When you come to a difficult decision in your life and you need God's guidance on the matter, don't run to somebody else. Work it out in the prayer closet and find the Lord's mind on the matter. When you come to a time whenever you're looking for the Lord to intervene, but there's an easy route. You can go down to Egypt and find the immediate relief, but you'd have to disobey the Lord to do it. You just stay in Canaan. You depend on the Lord to get you out of it. You know, a lot of times distraction, an easy way, an easy path. Most Christians are like electricity. They take the road and the path of least resistance. And Abraham did this. Abraham could have stayed and believed God, and he would have been the better for it. But instead, he chose to take the easy path. A lot of times difficulty will uh, turn us away from the life of faith. A lot of times distraction will. But I want to say a lot of times disappointment will. Disappointment is one of the hardest things in the world to deal with. And it, it surprises me that more preachers don't deal with it than do. And I'm just being honest with you tonight. Disappointment is a crushing thing. Any of you ever been disappointed? Yeah. You got me as a pastor. I know you've been disappointed, amen. Disappointment's a hard thing. When you put your faith in something and it appears as though that something has failed. All the more when we put our faith in God and it appears. Now, I did not say God failed. God doesn't fail. But it appears as though God has failed. 
How do you cope with that? Well, you can cope with it like Elijah did and crawl under a juniper tree and wait to die. You can deal with it like Abraham did and run down to Egypt and get in the middle of sin and uh, allow yourself to be drawn into a life of carnality in the doing to try to cope with it. You can cope with it like a lot of the Old Testament prophets that just cast their lot in with God and put their faith in Him. There's a lot of ways to deal with it. But I'm sure Abraham was disappointed. I don't know what Abraham expected to find. Something you find is this, that in some ways Bible characters were so unlike us, it's unreal. But you'll also find that in other ways, Bible characters are so much like us that it's startling. And I just kind of put myself in Abraham's shoes. and I don't know what Abraham was thinking. I kind of think Abraham was thinking like Moses did. You know, we're told that in the book of Acts, chapter number 7, that Moses understood that he was going to lead the children out of Israel when he was a young man in Egypt. He knew that much of God's plan. He just didn't understand how it was going to happen. He saw the promised land. He just didn't see the 40 years on the backside of the desert getting prepared for that ministry. He didn't see the 40 years of wandering that he was going to have to go through. He could see the end result. You know, I kind of wonder sometimes if maybe Abraham, if he kind of sat back and pictured Canaan land sometimes. And I kind of wonder if maybe he pictured in Canaan land beautiful orchards with abounding fruit, wonderful crops that were coming in every single season and milk and honey and all the provision that his mind and heart could ever desire. And he gets there and he finds that it's a barren land. At least when he gets there it is. There's famine upon the land. People are starving to death. And I'm sure he thought to himself, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I came to Canaan for. And he had to make up his mind. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. Abraham had to make up his mind why it was he came to Canaan in the first place. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. Every Christian that really serves God for any length of time is going to have to ask themselves this question. Why is it that I serve God? Do I serve God because He meets my needs? Or do I serve Him because He's my Master? Do I serve Him because of the joy that He gives? Or do I serve Him because He's my Lord? Abraham had to make a crucial decision here. Here he's faced with a famine in Canaan. I'm sure he was disappointed and it didn't work out like he had hoped to do. How's he going to face it? We see faith challenged. But I want you to notice that we not only see a faith challenge, but we see a forsaken confidence. How did Abraham respond? He left Canaan land and journeyed down to Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world and a picture of sin. Everybody that goes to Egypt has to go down to go to Egypt. doesn't matter where they're at in the, in the geography of the Bible times. They always go down to go to Egypt. And it's always a picture of the world and always a picture of sin. Well, where was it that the children of Israel came out of by the blood of the Lamb? They came out of Egypt. They came out of sin. They came out of deadness and lostness. That's where they came from. And Egypt's a picture of sin. And so what we're really seeing here is Abraham, because he's forsaken his confidence in God, traveling downward in to sin. And he gets there and he looks around. I don't know what Sarai looked like. She's an old woman by our standards today, but I don't know what she looked like. But he looks over at his wife and says, you know, you're awful purdy. You'll find that in the Greek and the Hebrew. You're awful purdy. Boy, you're a beautiful wife. And if we go down into Egypt, they're going to kill me for you. They're going to take and kill me just so that they can take you to be their wife. The Pharaoh will. Why don't you lie and tell them that you're my sister? I'd have serious misgivings about any man that'd be willing to do that, but I'm not in his shoes. He says, 
Uh, why don't you lie and tell them that you're my sister and that way they won't kill me? And he says that my life shall be saved by you. I want to ask you this simple question. I'm going to answer it, but I want you to think about it while I'm answering it. What happens when we don't live by faith? What does it bring in our lives if we don't live by faith? Faith is the natural course and path for the believer to take, to trust God effectually on a daily basis. And by the way, do you know that faith and obedience go hand in hand? If you believe God's Word, you're going to obey it. And if you don't believe God's Word, you're not going to obey it. And if you don't obey it, it's because you don't believe in it. It don't matter how much you say that you believe it. If you don't obey it, you don't believe it. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You want to express love and faith in me? Do it by keeping my commandments. So what is it that a lack of faith really brings? And we could really sum up any sin in the life of a believer, and we could sum up any waywardness and any, uh, any strides they take out of the will of God. We could lump under this category of a lack of faith because they do not believe that God will do what He said He would do, and they do not believe that God's Word is as powerful as it is and as true as it is. And so what does it bring about in his life? I want you to notice, first off, that it brought an insecurity in his life. Uh, maybe this isn't a complete statement, but there's some truth to it. That the opposite of faith, in a, in a sense, is fear and disbelief. As soon as Abraham quit putting his faith in God, he got scared. Let me tell you, the Bible says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. The truth of the matter is, the only way you'll find peace in this world is through faith in God. Because this world is shaking, and it's going to be shaking a lot more. This world is reeling and rocking. I don't know about you. When was the last time? Hey, how many of you growing up thought that gasoline uh, and milk would be about the same price? How many of you growing up thought you'd see a day when you go to the pump? And I know it's not at this now, but it has been in this town. It will be again, I don't doubt. Go to a pump and pay $5 a gallon for gasoline. Uh, some of you remember a time when you could have filled up your car three times over for that much. Now, for one gallon of gas, this economy is unstable. Our government is unstable. Let me ask you something. When was, when, how many of you thought growing up that we would have a president that was godless, probably atheistic, but Muslim in his overt tendencies and public displays, that at one point in time refused to salute the American flag? Amen. How many of you thought we'd ever come to a place where the president would openly support sodomy? How many of you thought we'd come to a place in this country politically when the murder of unborn children, over 47 million since the institution of Roe v. Wade, and that doesn't even count those that have been done off the books, when the murder of unborn children would be acceptable, but the murder of animals is considered criminal? We live in a politically rocky climate. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Let me just make a classy statement here. This world has gone plumb stupid, right? It's where we're living at in this day. Now, I may have offended you. You go on and be offended. You know, I can't remember who one of them old preachers. It don't really matter. Nobody reads old preachers except me, Ralph. I can say anybody, you know. I can say the old preacher Ronald Reagan said. Now, I mean, it, it wouldn't make a difference to people. But the old you preacher, you say, if that rubs you further the wrong way, turn the cat around. The fact of the matter is this. It's the truth. That's the day that we're living in. And so, how are we going to have security? How are we going to have stability and faith and, and peace? How are we going to have some kind of resolve in this world? Only by putting our dependence upon God and understanding it don't matter who sits in the White House. There's only one person sits on the throne. 
It doesn't matter who in this world runs our government. Uh, there's going to come a day when the government shall be upon his shoulders. We see that it brought insecurity. He ceased to believe the Lord. I want to say, secondly, that it brought iniquity. He looked at Sarah and he said, Sarah, why don't you lie for me? Why don't you lie for me? Why don't you tell a lie? Why don't you just tell them that you're my sister and not my wife? The Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, there's some, there's some meaning to that further than what I'm dealing with. But let me also say that sin is a result of faithlessness. You know why people disobey God's Word? Because they don't believe we have a God that judges us. You know, I believe we have a God that judges us. You say, but I'm a Christian. Yeah, the Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We have a God that's a judge. You know, this world wants to tell you that God doesn't judge people. I was going to preach on this this morning. I'll give you a little preview. You ready? A little preview. Out of Daniel chapter number 1, they take the children uh, out of uh, Israel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Belteshazzar. Now, you uh, know Belteshazzar by the name of Daniel better, uh, but you probably won't know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's other names. Hananiah was Shadrach, and, Azariah, or, uh, and Mishael was Meshach, and Azariah was Abednego, and all their names are significant. But they took these kids and they took them to reprogram them. They were brainwashing them in modern terminology. But they took Daniel, whose name means God is the judge. And they changed his name to he who layeth up treasures in secret. They took a young man that had been taught that God judges people and tried to teach him that really you can lay things up and do things in secret and God won't really see This world is in the process and in the business of reprogramming children out of what they've been raised in in the home destroying what faith they may have. Lack of faith always brings iniquity. And when you cease to believe God's Word, you will disobey God's Word. When you cease to trust God's Word, you will disobey God's Word. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because the flesh is too strong for it to be otherwise. I'll tell you why people obey God's Word, because they believe it. That's why they obey it. Because they have a faith in it, an effectual faith. We see it brought insecurity. I want to give you another thing. We see that it brought idolatry. This was a man that had stepped out of his country by faith into the will of God by depending on the Lord. And now he looks at his wife and says, I'll be saved by you. If you'll just lie for me, you'll save my life. Can the Lord stand in front of a Pharaoh? We see it time and time again in the Word of God. Can the Lord stand in front of kings? Time and time again in the Word of God. I like what Elijah said. He's in the throne room of Ahab, but what does he say? He said, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand. He was standing in Ahab's throne room, but he was standing in a mightier throne room than Ahab's. He said, I'm standing before God as I stand here. God could have took care of Abram, but instead Abram made an idol out of his wife, looked to his wife for dependence. You know, it's good for those of us that are married to understand that our spouse... Now, this is going to upset James Dobson. But our spouse cannot be our be-all, end-all. Only God can be to us everything that we need. God's designed it by that. God's designed it that way. And if you haven't learned that yet, you just wait till you've been married a little longer. You'll come into some things. You'll suffer some hurts that only God can heal. You'll face some difficulties that only God can calm you in. You'll face some questions that only God can answer. And we find that here at this place, a dependence upon God was what Abraham needed. 
but instead he put his faith in his spouse. Now, God, the Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. He was writing about your wife. If he had been writing about mine, he would have said a great thing. Amen? He was writing about your wife, not mine. But uh, whoso findeth a wife, uh, findeth a good thing, obtaineth favor with the Lord. And it's good, to, it's good to have a spouse. But I want to say that even our spouses can become our idols. Anything in our life can become an idol. It doesn't matter what it is. You say, what is an idol? An idol is anything that takes your affection away from the Lord. You know, there's a proper way to love your spouse and love God at the same time. There's a proper way to love your children, but love God at the same time. Oh, Harold Seitler used to say that duties never conflict. Uh, anything that God's commanded you to do, there's a harmonious and balanced way to do it. Abraham would have loved his wife a lot more if he had just obeyed the Lord instead of obeying himself. It brings idolatry in our life. And let me tell you this. Every single person, we're creatures of faith. All of us are. You say, I'm, I don't believe in anything. I'm not a creature of faith. You believed in your car when you got in it and started it. You believed in your floors when you rolled out of bed this morning. You believed in toothpaste when you brushed your teeth this morning. Some of you all may not believe in that, but I'm not going to get close enough to you to find out. You all believe in something, and I do too. And so we will, by necessity, put our faith in something. Just a question of what are we going to put our faith in? We find in this passage that Abram chose to put his faith in his spouse, made an idol out of her. When he forsook his confidence, it brought in his life insecurity and iniquity and idolatry. But I like this, and we're going to close with this thought. We see not only a faith challenged, when you go to serve God, there will be things that come into your path to derail you from serving God. But you don't have to go that way. We see a forsaken confidence. And if you do cease to put your faith in God, I promise you, I promise you, it's going to bring those things into your life. I want to give you a last thing. We see a faithful companion. You say, preacher, what do you mean? As I read this passage, you ever read a passage? How many of you study the Word of God? Now, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't, but you study the Word of God. You ever read a passage and there was some element of it that just stuck out and didn't seem to fit? There's been times when I've read the Bible and I thought, that don't make a lot of sense to me. I don't understand why that's in there. And as you read this passage, you'll find this, that Abraham went into sin and went out of the will of God, but you'll find he came out better than when he went in. I scratched my head about that for a while. I said, Lord, that don't make sense. And then I began to understand something. As it relates to the believer of today, our relationship with God is not in ourselves or in our faithfulness, but it's in the person of Jesus Christ. You forsake God, and I forsake God. Say, I don't. Stick around. You will. I turn my back on God at times. I hate to admit that to you. I mean, I know I'm a preacher, and us preachers, we're perfect. But there's times when I disobey the Lord and disappoint Him. But I just want to tell you that I'm so thankful that as many times as I forsake the Lord, He will never leave me nor forsake me. Even in Egypt, the Lord was with Abram. Even when Abram wasn't with the Lord, the Lord was with Abram. I want to point out three things, and I'm just going to hush. We see in this passage the provision of God. Look again at verse 16. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maidservants and she-asses and camels. We find that even in the midst of Abraham's sin, God provided for him. I can't tell you how many times 
that God has made a way for me when I've been far from Him. And I'm just speaking from experience right now, church. I can't tell you how many times when I've had sin in my life or when I've been disobedient to the Lord, when I've walked away from God, that He still provided for me, met my needs, put food on my table, kept my heat on, kept my water on, made a way for me. And I just want you to understand that you've got a faithful companion that will provide for you. We see not only the provision of God, but we see the protection of God. What happens? The Lord plagues the land of Egypt with many plagues. And I don't know how it was that Pharaoh found out. You know, everybody always blames Christians, don't they? First thing they do is they start saying, it must be that Christian fella. But Pharaoh says, well, it must be because of Abraham's uh, sister, Sarai, who's not really his sister, but is his wife. And so Pharaoh comes before him and says, uh, in, in short, in hillbilly terms, you need to get out of here. This isn't what we signed on for. You lied to me, and you need to get out of here. But what we see is that even in the midst of his sin, God was protecting him. I kind of think, and don't look, I mean, don't look at, if you, if, don't look for your, this in your Bible, you'll tear your concordance to pieces. But I, using a little sanctified imagination, I, I kind of think maybe that the Lord might, you know, eternity lasts a pretty good while, right? And we're going to have a lot of time. And I kind of wonder maybe if the Lord isn't going to show us all the times when He protected us that we were unaware of. Any of you, any of you get angry when you drive? Somebody testify, amen? Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it could be that that slow person in front of you was what kept you away from that wreck. Any of you ever get aggravated because the bills are, you know, you got more bills than you got month and things get short sometimes that ever happened to you? You know, it could be the Lord's protecting your family from covetousness and from materialism. I don't know why we've grown up with this mentality that our kids always have to have more than, than we had. Uh, let me just step out on a limb here and say some of you all didn't turn out too bad being raised poor, did you? We've got a mentality that our kids have to have everything that we've got. Kids today have more money than I do. I was in the bus ministry and, and was a youth pastor and, and ministering to these poor uh, inner-city, low-income kids and they come in and flash big rolls of money. And I'm thinking, where did you get that? <laughs> I've not got that much money. And these little kids uh, are flashing around this money. Kids have everything that they need. It could be that God's trying to protect your family from getting drawn into worldly goods. I kind of believe the Lord's going to show us all the ways in which He protected us that we weren't even aware of. We couldn't even see at the time. But the Lord protected us. The Lord watched over Abram, even in the midst of his sin. I want to show you a final thing, and I'm going to hush. Look with me at the next two verses of the first chapter, or the first two verses of the next chapter. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. We see the providence of God. I'm going to make some statements that are a little bit deep, and I, I don't know how much I grasp them. <laughs> Boy, that's good. The blind leading the blind, isn't it? The providence of God and the sovereignty of God are so thorough that they use our sinfulness and backsliddenness to accomplish the purposes of God. You see, Abram didn't have any excuse to go into Egypt and to sin. 
But if I could just quote a little verse that you might have heard, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You say, preacher, you're saying we can do what we want and God's going to clean up. No, the Bible says, what shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I'm not saying you have a license to sin. What I'm saying is this. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. God's still got a plan for your life. I've shared this with you several times. I'll share it with you once more. We read of Peter in the New Testament, in the book of Luke. And the night before our Lord's crucifixion, the Lord looked at Peter and said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. I read that and read that and never saw this until a couple months ago. That word converted, and I'm not going to give you a bunch of Greek and all that mess. I'm just going to tell you what converted means, because it means the same thing today that it meant in Bible times. When something's converted, it's switched. It's turned around. It's changed. I don't believe that Peter had to be born again later on. We could have a theological discussion about it. But what I think Christ is referring to is this. He's saying, Peter, you're getting ready to walk away from me. But when you return, strengthen the brethren. You say, why is that important? That tells me that God's got a plan for our life beyond our backsliddenness. God's got a plan for our life beyond our disobedience. You think you're fooling God? God knew what you were when He saved you. You think God doesn't know when you're going to mess up and how you're going to mess up? You think God's so ill-prepared? God knows what's going on in your life better than you know what's going on in your life. God's got a plan even when we've sinned, even when we've messed up, even when we've done wrong. God has a plan not only for us to get back right with Him, But through the difficulty, through the sinfulness, through the backsliddenness, God brings about good things in our life. I'm thankful that we've got a faithful companion, church. And I'm thankful that when I mess up and when I cease to have and put my faith in God, that I've got a God that's still faithful to me and faithful to His Son. 